Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphor multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. If you've been in the anti-dieting slash intuitive eating space for a while, then you probably freaked out when you saw Christy Harrison's name on today's podcast episode. She is somebody who has essentially pioneered the anti-diet movement. I have listened to her podcast since 2016, always learning so much from it and absorbing and healing literally through her podcast episodes. I never would think that Christy Harrison would be on my podcast. So I was having a total fangirl moment before we started recording. And I'm excited about Christy's expansion into not just intuitive eating and anti-diet education, but also thinking about what she calls the wellness trap. It's also the title of her new book. And basically it expands these themes that we often see in diet culture and the prevalence of disordered eating and looks at them through a lens of wellness culture, which is the whole industry, many industries combined that tell us that there's always something to fix, that food is medicine, that you can heal from the inside out, that you have to take this and buy that and spend lots of money, time, energy, and attention trying to quote-unquote heal yourself without sufficient evidence to prove that these methods and strategies work. And a lot of times, as we will learn today from Christy, they're actually quite harmful, not just for your relationship with food and your mental health, but often they have physical health consequences too. So know that some of the things we discuss you might disagree with or perhaps you have a different personal lived experience about and that's okay. Christy is really coming from a scientific lens, looking on what the research says, 
looking at the cultural phenomenons and social patterns that so many of us just get sucked into without ever questioning their validity. So this is really what she is shining light on and what we're inviting you to just think critically about. You don't have to stop all your favorite wellness products or routines, but perhaps just see them for what they are. You will see Christy's unbiased and grounded approach. So I promise that even though this episode might sound extreme, once you really hear her talk, you'll be like, oh my gosh, she's the most educated, well-rounded, grounded person ever. In case you're not familiar with Christy Harrison and why you should trust her and learn from her. She is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and journalist who has been covering food, nutrition, and health for more than 20 years. She is the author of two books, The Wellness Trap, her new book that we talk about in this episode, and Anti-Diet, her earlier book, which is just so, so, so good if you're just starting out in your anti-diet journey, and the producer and host of the podcast, Rethinking Wellness and Food Psych, which has helped tens of thousands of people around the world think critically about diet and wellness culture and develop a more peaceful relationship with food. That is myself included. I am a living testimony of Christie's work. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Self, BuzzFeed, Refinery29, Gourmet, Slate, The Food Network, and many other publications, and her work is regularly featured in national print and broadcast media. Learn more about Christy and her work at christyharrison.com. Definitely pick up her book, The Wellness Trap, and listen to her new podcast, Rethinking Wellness, which I will also be on soon. So without further ado, please welcome Christy Harrison to talk about when wellness becomes BS. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. I told you before we started recording how much of a big full circle moment this is for me because you were my intro into the anti-diet world back in like 2016, 2017 when I was really struggling. And I I don't know, I'm just having a big moment right now. It's so nice to hear that, to hear my work has been meaningful to you. And like I was saying to you offline too, that that was like kind of early days. I've been doing the podcast for like three years at that point, but now it's been 10 years. So it's, you know, those were, you were one of the the early fans. And I will forever be a fan because I love the way that your work and your message has evolved and I'm excited to get all into that. But first, in case people might not be familiar with you, I'm sure they could dive into all of the resources and podcasts, newsletters that you have out on the internet. So we don't have to go into a full like food, healing your relationship with eating, that kind of thing, because I think there's just a lot out there already. But I do want to know... If you can tell us about like the moment, because you're a registered dietitian and now you're an anti-diet dietitian, but was there a moment that you, in studying dietetics and in school, that you realized that dieting in the the way that we see that word now was just not it? Because from my understanding, your background is that you started studying this because of your like personal interest with nutrition. And Mm -hmm. then somewhere along the way got converted into more of an anti-diet lens or completely an anti-diet lens. So what was that moment or series of turning points? 
Yeah, it wasn't really one moment. I think it was kind of a series of things. So, I mean, my background was in journalism. I was a journalist and worked in magazines for six years full time before going back to school to be a dietitian. And I focused on like food, nutrition, and health and was drawn to those subjects because of my own obsession with food, because of my own disordered eating. You know, I wasn't eating enough. I was over exercising. I was like obsessed with finding what was going to bring me wellness. And doing all that research and stuff. It just sort of led into doing it for my work. And then I was working in journalism and wanting to be more of an expert myself, like interviewing all these experts and like wanting to know the science for myself and also seeing the media industry, the media landscape changing so much. This was back in like 2008, 2009, when there were a bunch of layoffs, a bunch of closures of magazines. My magazine did end up getting shuttered as well. And I kind of saw that coming. And so I was like, what else can I do to sort of build a career in journalism and media that's not just dependent on, you know, full-time jobs in magazines or whatever. And so I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian. And part of what drew me to that was the desire to help, quote unquote, end the obesity epidemic. That was really, I was really bought into that kind of rhetoric at the time and you know, saw nothing wrong with it. Was really into Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel. And I went to NYU for my master's of public health nutrition to study with Marion Nessel and then to get my registered dietitian's license too. And so I was, you know, very much like on board with all of the thinking. But I was also early in my own recovery from disordered eating too, because I had been. it was a very winding story. I won't get into all of it, but like, you know, journalism helped me, covering food helped me, having like a foodie boyfriend helped me come out of like the depths of the, of the eating disorder. But one of the things that I think helped me the most was starting to work on a book about emotional eating. It was a, a cultural history of emotional eating. And I did a lot of research around like how the topic came up and sort of like thinking around treatments for emotional eating and I just, I stumbled on the book Intuitive Eating and I started bringing that into my own like relationship with food and my own therapy. I was in psychotherapy at the time for anxiety and, you know, other issues. I didn't really bring up my eating stuff. It, you know, came up here and there, but my therapist didn't actually specialize in disordered eating. So I don't think she really knew to draw that out of me. And I think I was also kind of protected about it. But when I discovered the book Intuitive Eating, I started to bring that into therapy a little bit. And my therapy had also started to focus a lot more around self-compassion and mindfulness. And so that was sort of like a natural fit with intuitive eating and sort of taking a more self-compassionate approach in my relationship with food. So that was like the first step, I think, out of the disordered eating. And I was in school for dietetics at the time. So I was starting to see how intuitive eating was impacting me and my relationship with food and helping me heal. But then doing this work in class. And then I was also working part-time in nutrition education when I was in school. And then I eventually worked in nutrition policy full-time while also going to school. And so like through there, seeing my clients the ones who were like doing the quote unquote, the best at following my recommendations, nutrition education recommendations were also the ones who I was like, Oh, like some of the stuff they're doing is, you know, reminds me of how I was in the worst of my disordered eating. You know, it was so antithetical to what I was doing at the time in my relationship with food with intuitive eating and learning to heal. And so that was kind of like the first major cognitive dissonance with the model of nutrition that I had learned in school and, you know, the sort of standard 
view of weight and health. And from there, I worked in nutrition policy for a while, and then I started to get interested in eating disorders and launched my podcast, Food Psych, in 2013 and started doing some training on eating disorders and decided that's what I wanted to specialize in and got pretty quickly into the field. Started going to conferences, you know, doing a lot of trainings and working with mentors and everything I was learning kept pointing me towards intuitive eating, health at every size, like an anti-diet approach to eating disorder treatment, anti-diet approach to sort of, you know, health in general and well-being for people in eating disorder recovery, but also as prevention to help people not fall into eating disorders in the first place. And so that's where I think it really started to click like, okay, this thing that I've been doing for myself that was so healing for me in my relationship with food and helped me get to a point of really solid recovery by that time was also kind of considered a best practice for eating disorder recovery and prevention. And that, you know, if we want to stop seeing people fall into the trap of disordered eating and eating disorders, we really need to sort of reorient the way we talk and think about food and nutrition. And that started to become my approach. I got certified in intuit- as an intuitive eating counselor. I started really specializing in intuitive eating and just, you know, using that approach with all my clients. And of course, most of the clients that were coming to see me had some level of disordered eating. Even if they were coming for something else, they were also kind of coming for disordered eating. It's like diabetes and disordered eating or, you know, heart disease and disordered eating, whatever it might be, you know. And so that, I think, really kind of cemented it for me to see clients doing well with this approach and the way that it was helping people heal their relationships with food. And then I got into the cultural aspects of it. And I think that really, like, that actually took me in kind of a radical direction. You know, it was sort of more based on individual work before and then starting to see the social impact of it, I think, took me in the more, like, sociological direction and thinking about the culture and how that influences people's relationships with food. It's interesting how when you said people would see you for diabetes and disordered eating or heart disease and disordered eating, it's interesting how those are often coupled, just planting a seed for more things to think about and for us to talk about. But first, I want to know, when you first found the book Intuitive Eating, when you were working on the emotional eating book and then had this kind of one step at a time journey. This might be a rather intricate question, but what was it that made you open to intuitive eating? Because for me, and at least for the people I've talked to, intuitive eating is like a last resort. It's like, like for me, I'm like, it was like, fuck it. I don't care. I'm gaining weight. Let me just be fat. My biggest fear at the time, this was just like how I was thinking about it. And I'm like, whatever, like, let me just try it. Let's see what happens. And it was just this like act of desperation. And the way that you just talked about it felt, I guess, like very logical. And you're like, okay, Mm. let me try this new thing for myself. Am I just jumping to conclusions or like, what was it that made you even receptive to intuitive eating? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I I love that you drew that out because I think it is such a different mindset to be in. And actually, I was exposed to intuitive eating back in college when I first had my eating disorder. I enrolled in a study and they used principles of intuitive eating in the study. It was like, you know, testing a, I think it was like an online, like hybrid online and in-person intervention 
they were testing the efficacy of it. And it was based on intuitive eating principles. And I remember hearing like, you know, you need to eat enough during the day so that you're not binging at night and all foods are, you know, good foods, nothing is off limits and all this stuff. And I was just like, fuck that, you know, like I was not at all on board with it then. And it really didn't resonate. You know, maybe it helped me from getting quite as deep into the eating disorder during the duration of the study. But then after that, I got even deeper into it. And it didn't really register, I think, that it was something that would be helpful to me. And it took, I mean, I really think like there was some serendipity and just luck in my relationship with food and how it all unfolded. I think like the sort of the worst the eating disorder got, and it was never diagnosed as such at the time, you know, I was in therapy, but even my therapists were like, well, you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder. You know, that was the sort of unfortunate impact of weight stigma, even though I was thin, you know, I was already, was definitely too thin for me as well, but I was, I was a, you know, thin person anyway, but still not considered thin enough for an eating disorder, which I think is just how weight stigma affects people all across the spectrum with eating disorders. But so it got worse and worse. And I think at the worst of it was when I met that guy who ended up being like the foodie boyfriend. Can I just ask, because I read a part of your book, is the foodie boyfriend also the yogi boyfriend or the one that like opened no. your eyes about yoga? No, I was a serial monogamist in my life. So I've had, <laughs> there's been many. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The one who uh, told me about yoga was my high school boyfriend. Very, you know, helpfully kind of dissuaded me from using yoga for aesthetic purposes. And I, of course, didn't listen at the time either. But since then, I <laughs> <laughs> understood the Got it. importance of what he had to say. No, this was the foodie boyfriend was like after, you know, in and after college, like my last year of college and a couple years after. And I just, you know, thought he was so awesome. I wanted to impress him. He was like a little bit older. He just seemed so worldly and had all this knowledge of food and liked to go on food adventures. And I wanted to like keep up. So I had to kind of put away some of the worst of my disordered eating when I was around him. You know, I had to like be adventurous and be open to new things and not compensate, you know, not immediately go over exercise or anything like that. And I couldn't be as restrictive with him as I was on my own. And so like the more time I spent with him, the more it was just, it was like exposure therapy, really. I kind of had like built-in meal support. And interestingly, I learned later that he also had his own disordered relationship with food that I couldn't see at the time. He seemed so healthy to me, you know, but then like later on, I'm like, oh yeah, I I see why you were also struggling. People kind of find each other, I think, sometimes in those moments. But, you know, he was definitely like further on than I was in in my recovery at the time. And so that was really helpful. You know, I did gain a little bit of weight from that. And I think that like gaining weight and sort of realizing, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world. Like I'm still lovable. I'm still accepted. I'm still, you know, in this relationship, people still like me. I still have friends. I still have a career. You know, all the stuff was like, it was showing me that weight gain wasn't the worst thing in the world. And this was like, you know, I still had so much enormous thin privilege, right? So it wasn't, I wasn't getting the stigma from the outside world that unfortunately so many people do get at higher weights. But, you know, for me at the time, it was still kind of a revelation to be like, okay, well, I've gained a little bit of weight and this is, everything's still okay. So I think that 
prepared me for the next step and the next step and the next step, you know? And it was like, I eventually worked at a food magazine and like was around food all the time and had to go down to the test kitchen to try things and couldn't be weird. I just had to eat it. And again, like I thought everybody there had such a great relationship with food. And then later on I learned, yeah, there are a bunch of other people struggling there too, you know, but it's all relative. Like, so to where I was when I came in, everybody else was further along and like doing better, at least modeling kind of a more peaceful relationship with food than what I had at the time. And so that helped me, I think, prepare for the next step, which was really opening up to intuitive eating and starting to accept my body, starting to accept all foods. And by the time I was writing that book and discovered intuitive eating, I was ready for it. You know, if it had been five or 10 years prior, I don't think I would have been ready. What I'm hearing you say is that it was a culmination of many different environmental aspects and then perhaps like one gateway such as Intuitive Eating, a book that has been revolutionary for so many now intuitive eaters, but all the stars kind of had to almost align. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, totally. I feel like, you know, there are just so many little fortunate twists and turns in in my story that put me in a place where I could I could accept that. And, you know, another thing I think that is worth mentioning is that I was an intuitive eater for the first 20 years of my life, 19 or 20 years. You know, I I had the good fortune to grow up with enough food. My family was never food insecure. I had the sort of luck of the draw of thin privilege that I I had. It was always in a thinner body. Nobody told me to lose weight. Nobody said anything negative about my weight, even when I hit puberty and was gaining some weight naturally through puberty and just was like a little bit disoriented by that and had some fat phobic thinking around that. It wasn't enough to push me into a diet or to do anything sort of dramatic to change my body. You know, I was like, oh, maybe I should exercise more, but I didn't, it didn't become a thing. So that was fortunate too, I think, to have that long legacy of intuitive eating to kind of, in my own life, to to draw back from when I did discover the book. Mm-hmm. For someone who, because I think when I think about my journey, I also speak about it kind of like you. It's like this sequential, like this happened. I also had a foodie yoga boyfriend, but he was the same <laughs> person. And (laughs) I got to move away and be a little bit more immersed in nature. And then this book came into my life. And this lab partner said something to me that opened my eyes to something else. And just like all these micro moments, I guess, adding up to a big macro shift over the course of a couple of years. For somebody who is still perhaps in the thick of it, And I think a lot of people would express kind of doing this tango with diet culture and intuitive eating. What would you attribute in like working with people, talking to people? What do you think could give people that final push toward embracing intuitive eating like forever? Because Mm -hmm. I'm at a point where I feel like I can never go back to dieting, but I can't think about where that shift was for me specifically, but I'm sure you've, you've probably worked with a lot more people on this, but what is it that like really keeps people stuck in a disordered relationship with food besides our capitalistic fat phobic culture and the air and society that we live and breathe in every day? (laughs) I mean that largely, yeah, maybe (laughs) Um, for sure. But I think, I think also like 
getting to the point in your life where the bad of the eating disorder outweighs the good. You Mm. know, it's kind of like what they say for all kinds of recovery, like just getting to the point where the the process or the addiction or whatever it is, you know, the, the eating disorder in this case is just taking more from your life than it's giving you. And not even the eating disorder, like doesn't have to be a diagnosed eating disorder, right? It could be chronic dieting. It could be just, you know, a constant fight in your relationship with your body. It's whenever you get to that point where the harms and the pain of that is outweighing whatever benefits you've gotten from a diet, whether it's, you know, greater access to thin privilege and sort of a feeling of more acceptance in society or praise from friends and family and strangers and the internet, you know, people, I've seen people who are influencers who like have a whole business and brand built around that. And so then, you know, having to let that go can be really hard. Mm -hmm. But even just, you know, everyday people whose doctors are praising them or spouses and partners are praising them, you know, like that kind of stuff is unfortunately, very reinforcing. And so, you know, I think getting to a point where the pain of disordered eating, of constantly fighting with your body, of fighting yourself over what you're going to eat, of restricting and binging or restricting and restricting for those sort of rare people who, for whom restriction just begets more restriction. And then the negative health outcomes that come with that, you know, hormonal irregularities, missing periods, osteoporosis, heart problems, acne, thinning hair, all that stuff, you know, like whatever it is for you, whether it's those physical things, whether it's the emotional, whether, you know, for most people, it's a combination. It's like the way that Mm -hmm. it interferes in relationships, the way that it interferes with your ability to be present in your work, in your life, with your kids, with your friends, with your whatever, you know, all of that stuff. I think when you sort of become aware of how much the eating disorder, the disordered eating, the chronic dieting is interfering in your life in all those ways. I think that's the moment or moments when people tend to make a change, you know, and it's not all at once and it can come and go. And I definitely find people will come to me for coaching or enroll in my courses or whatever when they're at a point where they're like, I can't take it anymore. I can't go on another diet. Like I can't do this the bad is outweighing the good, you know? And then when they get into recovery enough of a ways, I definitely find that they'll kind of forget about the bad stuff. It's not as immediate or as present to mind. And then they'll be like nostalgic for those good old days of dieting, you know? And that's a tough part of recovery, Mm -hmm. right? That's That's a crossroads. And I think people can, you know, sometimes loop back into dieting and disordered eating at that point because they, they haven't quite like put that last nail in the coffin of it yet. And sometimes that's what needs to happen, right? Like relapse can be part of recovery or or part of the process of healing. And then, you know, sometimes people will circle back and go on that off ramp and then come back on and and continue forward in recovery. Sometimes people can get through that crossroads and, you know, stay on the path of recovery and sort of deepen it. But yeah, I think there's, there's lots of little moments where it could kind of go either way for a lot of us. And just recognizing that and recognizing like, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with you if you do go the way of falling back into diet culture at that point. Like it's information. It just gives you Mm -hmm. more information to know, okay, like maybe you have to do that in some cases to really know, yeah, this really doesn't work for me. This, all the stuff, all the problems that I had before when I was doing disordered eating behaviors are still there. And now I know for sure that I want to be on this path of recovery. Mm-hmm. My brain lit up when you said, does the good outweigh the bad? Because my 
bachelor's in, is in economics and we're mm. constantly doing cost benefit analysis. <laughs> but speaking of geeky things like that, one thing that I love about your work is the scientific literacy that it has taught me and just overall critical thinking skills from your podcast and your newsletters alone, like where where you answer listener questions in your email. Your approach has helped me think critically about food and diets and also things like health, disease, skincare, aging, yoga, you've mentioned in your book, even plant medicine, which I want to talk about a little bit too, and just wellness in general. So tell us about your new book, The Wellness Trap, and what The Wellness Trap is, and why this book and why now? Mm, Yes, good questions. So this book, The Wellness Trap, is sort of my effort to unpack some of the darker sides of wellness culture, the the problematic nature of the pursuit of wellness for so many people. And part of why I wanted to write this book was just what I've seen so much in my own practice and my own work with clients and in my own relationship with food as well, which was that, you know, pursuing wellness in our society at this point in time, especially now, but I think even 20 years ago when I was first working to heal from chronic illness and, you know, or even figure out, you know, diagnosis to some of the chronic conditions I had was and is that people end up going down a path of significantly disordered eating pretty quickly, I think, when they seek out wellness because wellness culture pushes that so much on us. So from alternative and integrative and functional medicine providers who really look at diet as the root of all disease and push, you know, restrictive diets, cutting out gluten, cutting out dairy, cutting out this, cutting out that, and tons of supplements as well to just people on the internet, influencers telling you that, you know, you can cut out this food for this supposed benefit. There's just information everywhere, I think, leading people down a path of disordered eating. And you know, my first book, Anti-Diet, I had a whole chapter devoted to wellness culture as the new guise of diet culture and how diet culture has morphed and shape-shifted to try to stay relevant and taken on this new guise of wellness to try to do that. And what I've really seen is that that is very much the case. And I think diet culture is also baked into the concept of wellness that we have in our society at this point that's kind of been around since the 1970s that sort of launched the modern contemporary wellness movement. Diet culture is very much like at the root of that. You know, it's it's part of the heart of the concept of wellness is the idea of thinness, the idea of demonizing certain foods and food groups, the idea that food is medicine and that, you know, not eating the proper foods mean you're automatically making yourself unhealthy. And so I wanted to unpack that and explore that more in a book. And I, you know, the second chapter of my first book, I could have gone on for the entire book in that vein. And I had a lot of other stuff to cover. So I knew that I had, you know, another book in me potentially about this. I've been over the years seeing more and more people coming to me saying, you know, I have chronic candida or I have adrenal fatigue or I have leaky gut syndrome diagnosed by this naturopath or this functional medicine doctor or this, you know, questionnaire online or whatever. And it's telling me that I need to cut out all these foods and do all these supplements and maybe do other protocols as well that don't have a lot of good evidence behind them. And 
how do I maintain a good relationship with food while also doing these things for my health, quote unquote. And, you know, looking into the research on that and like the evidence behind these supposed conditions, I realized not only is there not good evidence for cutting out foods for gut health or adrenal fatigue or whatever for the general population, but actually that quote unquote leaky gut syndrome, quote unquote adrenal fatigue, quote unquote chronic candida actually aren't real medical conditions either, don't have good scientific evidence behind them. And the supposed diagnoses that people are getting from these wellness practitioners are actually doing a lot more harm than good because they're distracting people from the real causes of what ails them, of their symptoms. And the symptoms are very real, but the explanations they're being given aren't based in sound evidence. And then the dietary recommendations and the supplement recommendations and all the rest are also not based in sound evidence and can lead people really far astray, can, you know, take people who already had disordered eating way further into their eating disorders, can take people who weren't, you didn't have any issues with food, people who are some of those unicorns in our society who are actually like very much at peace with food and don't worry about their weight, you know, can make even those people obsessive and fearful about food and and take them to a really disordered place. And so I think that was the main inspiration for the book. And then also seeing the impact of social media and how social media algorithms drive us towards wellness, mis and disinformation and towards more and more extreme content to where someone can come in. And, you know, we see this from the testimony of the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, about Facebook's own internal research, it showed that teenage girls who came in searching for healthy eating were radicalized by the algorithm to go from quote unquote healthy eating and sort of basic nutrition stuff to pro eating disorder content in a very short period of time. And we've seen that with TikTok now too. There's a recent report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate showing that TikTok also takes people posing as young girls, like new accounts created to to say that they're teenage girls that have an interest in weight loss or an interest in healthy eating takes them to these pro-eating disorder spaces and also self-harm content. And so these algorithms are driving people from innocuous interest in health and well-being, which, you know, in this society is already really fraught, right? Because diet and wellness culture, you know, even having an interest in quote unquote healthy eating, I think is is a vulnerable space to be in. But then social media is just making it, making people all the more vulnerable and taking them to these really dangerous places. And I actually got the book deal for this book on January 5th of 2021, the day before the infamous January 6th. And so, you know, that actually, even though I was already thinking about social media and its impacts and how it was driving people toward more conspiracy theories and, you know, driving all this COVID mis and disinformation that we were seeing during the pandemic, I started to really think even more deeply about that in the wake of January 6th, because we were seeing a lot of research on how social media amplifies division and hate across all of society and thinking about how that applied to wellness and how it, how that divisiveness and controversy was leading people to these really harmful wellness spaces where they were being told they could get off all psychotropic medication through diet and lifestyle alone or not get any sort of conventional treatment for cancer or any conventional treatment for anything, you know, to like pushing people to issue vaccines of all kinds or any kind of medicine, you know, in favor of these supposedly natural treatments. So I, I spent some time on that in the book as well, because I think 
it's really a slippery slope. You know, I've come to see wellness as a really risky proposition because seeking out wellness, seeking out sort of what we might all think of as just sort of basic components of well-being actually puts people very much at risk of these more extreme forms of content and extreme behaviors that can really lead them astray or, or really harm their well-being in the long run. About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, I would add it to my self-love playlist. And now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist, and these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist. And full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. I'm really glad, not glad that it happened, but glad that you'll know what I mean as soon as I say what I'm about to say without prefacing (laughs) everything. I'm glad that you had the context of the pandemic to put into this book also, because as somebody who has very close friends and family that get very easily sucked into the conspirituality Mm. black holes and it is absolutely a disease for the entire family and it's it's all fun and games when you think there are aliens out there but it's not so much so when something like January 6th happens and unfortunately those people hang out in the exact same spaces and places so I just think it's incredibly relevant not just to people who have a history of disordered eating and dabbling in the wellness stuff and perhaps spending a little bit too much money on this expensive ass shit, but also just anybody who is either predisposed to it or has somebody in their life that is that way. And the pandemic has really highlighted that. Totally. Yeah. I think it's it's really been interesting to see who's falling into that, into those traps and you know, the vulnerabilities that people have. And one of the things I found in my reporting for the book is that, you know, people who are, who believe in one form of conspiracy are more likely to believe in others. And, you know, in wellness spaces, I think so many people have a belief in some form of conspiracy, even if it's just, oh, big pharma, you know, doesn't want you to know about like natural remedies because it'll take away from their profits. That's a a pretty common trope, I think, in wellness culture that's been around for a long time. You know, those kinds of conspiracy-like framings of things. And, you know, there's, there's stuff too, like astrology or, you know, the aliens out there that are, it's not necessarily conspiracy, but it's like conspiracy adjacent. It's, you know, belief in the idea that everything is connected, nothing happens by accident, right? You know, which that 
I think is a belief in certain forms of spirituality as well that doesn't necessarily tip into conspiracism or, you know, these problematic wellness culture ways of thinking. But I think in wellness culture, oftentimes it goes along with a lot of rhetoric around, you know, the only way you can protect yourself is to use this crystal or the only way you can keep yourself from the harms of big pharma is to like not use any sort of conventional medicine or the the harms of big food. You know, you have to grow your own food or you have to shop all organic and sustainable. And, you know, it's like, it's not just that there's sort of this belief in everything being connected, but also like you are personally responsible for making sure that bad things don't happen to you. And if you're unwell, then it's your fault, right? If you're unwell, it's because you didn't do something enough. It's because you didn't eat clean enough. You didn't do the right wellness practices or pray hard enough or whatever it is. And so, or manifest, right? Like, you know, I talk about manifesting mm-hmm. in the book and how problematic that sort of way of construing and conceiving of mental health or, you know, the fact that that's so central to wellness culture's ideas of mental health can be really harmful to people. So I think there's there's definitely like, as one of my sources in the book says, it's fertile ground for, you know, this kind of conspiracism to take place for sure. I don't know if you talked about this in the book because I'm only about 60% of the way in, but does it at all remind you of, or did your research show that it's in a way like repackaged religion? Like some of the rhetoric that you are using just to describe it feels like if you don't obey God, then he will send you to hell. (laughs) You know, it feels very extreme. And I think that even the way people say the universe. Now, caveat to that, I have to admit, I'm a dabbler. Mm -hmm. I speak like that sometimes. There are some things I have questions for you related to that. So I'm not, like you said, it's fertile ground. We're not discrediting everything, especially if it's like helpful to somebody or it provides some positivity Mm -hmm. or light or a community of some sort, a hobby, whatever it is. But the fact that it's like so similar to this like cultish language and behaviors and the communities. Right. Well, and I want to say too, like it's an important piece of context, I think for the book and for all these discussions are that like people are vulnerable to this kind of thinking about wellness culture. People are vulnerable to wellness culture's pitches and claims in the first place because they're being unserved or underserved in a lot of cases by the conventional healthcare system. You know, I think a lot of us have felt dismissed, unheard, you know, not treated with the kind of respect or empathy we deserve and desire by conventional medical providers, especially when we're struggling with unexplained symptoms. And so I think it can really easily open the door for wellness culture to kind of step in. And and this framing of everything is more natural, more gentle and holistic is like what we want when we're in that space of not feeling heard or served by the conventional system. So is it okay if I mention that you have very personal experience with this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do in the book too. Okay. I just want to make sure that people know that because I think I think that's important because so many people, not so many people, somebody might say like, oh, it's all BS without actually having experience like that pain of being dismissed at the doctor's office or not knowing what's going on with your body for decades. So I'm just wondering if yeah. you could touch on that a little bit too. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I I try to give that context and everything I say about this book too, because I have been through it as well. And I have experienced that sort of dismissal and that pain. And I have, I 
actually don't even remember how many conditions. I literally, every time I worked on that section of the book, I like was like, oh yeah, I also have this. Oh, I should add this. And now I'm like, I need to go back and look at it and see everything listed out. But I have like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I have another autoimmune condition that's like an autoimmune bleeding disorder. I have eczema, which is another autoimmune thing. I have IBS. I have gastroesophageal reflux disease. I have a hiatal hernia. I have... I don't know, like a whole bunch of other things, plantar fasciitis, chronic tendonitis. I have a lot of things that tend to get blamed on food or weight and, you know, things that people are told to cut out foods for, things that people are told to lose weight for. And none of that worked for me. I tried for years to make my diet as clean as possible and lose weight and be as thin as possible and, you know, ended up over-exercising and probably bringing on some of those chronic conditions, those injury conditions because of all the over, you know, exertion that I was doing. And, you know, the restrictive dieting never helped going gluten-free, cutting out carbs and trying to eat at certain times a day and all the other stuff like that. It didn't ever help me. It only hurt me and made everything worse for me personally. And I think for a lot of people I've worked with as well, disordered eating can exacerbate a lot of chronic health conditions. You know, in some cases it can trigger them. I think my IBS, my acid reflux, like I think those things might've initially been triggered by not eating enough and, or like restricting and binging and, you know, the sort of havoc that that wreaks on the gut. I had always had some gastrointestinal issues, but they never reached the level of a diagnosable thing before that. And I think the disordered eating really triggered it. So I've been through the ringer with this stuff and I definitely found some support in alternative spaces that I wasn't getting in conventional healthcare. You know, in conventional healthcare, I was often getting told like, yeah, we don't know what's wrong with you and maybe it's just stress or, you know, see this other provider I really don't know or try this medication or try this over-the-counter thing or whatever that, you know, didn't have much of an effect. And so I think the door was wide open for me to to like explore other alternatives and I didn't feel heard or served in a lot of conventional spaces. So I was like, you know, felt really good to be empathized with and to have somebody spend an hour, you know, with me for an appointment, even if it was like ultimately a misdiagnosis and a totally wrong path, you know, and I, now I'm like, oh, <laughs> and man, cost $500. so expensive. Yeah. Because none of those <laughs> out of pocket folks no take insurance. Right. Exactly. I know. I would spend an hour with you for that much. I would spend an hour with you for free. <laughs> no, but yeah. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's wild, like how much that helps, you know, just to feel heard and understood. But it makes us vulnerable too, right? Because I think when we go down that path with someone and they're like, I hear you, I've got you, I'm going to figure this out you know, you can spend a lot more time with that provider maybe than you would with someone else, even when they're leading you astray or, or you know, giving you things that aren't working, right? That like they're telling you, well, yeah. it's not this, it's this, cut out this other thing, or, you know, you just haven't been doing it enough, or you need to take this medication that's like, it's really for this condition, but, you know, off label, I'm going to prescribe it to you or whatever it might be. I think it can take us really far astray. I empathize with people who are in that situation. And I also want to say like, you know, I have a lot of privilege too with that. Like these chronic conditions for me were debilitating to a degree, but not consistently. And like I have, you know, now they're all pretty well managed and I have flare-ups and, and you know, remission, flare-ups and remission. And it's not 
constant. And even when the flare-ups happen, they're a lot less significant or a lot less severe than they were in the worst of my disordered eating days and the worst of the the days of the, you know, conditions. So I empathize with people and, you know, haven't been there necessarily for people who have kind of unremitting, consistent, you know, just constant illness. My illness is chronic, but, you know, has ebbs and flows. And in a lot of cases, I feel as good or as able to function as most people I know without chronic illnesses. So that's something too. Yeah. Thank you just for being so conscientious about just acknowledging where you have lived experience and research and expertise and also where you might not. Although I feel like the former outweighs the latter so much in the way that you speak about everything. So you are talking about people who are susceptible, people who have pre-existing conditions and feel very let down by the common medical system. And I think this is where I must say that The Wellness Trap is one of the most unbiased books about this topic. Not that there are many about this topic, but you cover a lot of ground in a very neutral way. I think on the surface, because we live in this like wellnessy world, it might seem like you're very extreme, but when you actually start reading the book, it's very not. And it's just super balanced and you address all of the things just like I'm sure people can perceive from this conversation alone. But I do have a couple of, like I said, I'm a dabbler. <laughs> And I have three things that popped into my mind in speaking with you that I would love for you to, whether it's debunk or shine a little bit more light on, or to feel free to tell me that I'm like wrong. But I have three particular areas that really relate to people feeling let down by medicine and then going down alternative medicine, wellnessy stuff that might feel like it has helped them more so. And I think the first area is super sticky. So mm. <laughs> big disclaimer here, but birth control and hormones and how little women's reproductive health has been studied and monitored and taken seriously. And I think women especially probably go down these slippery slopes because we have been fucked by the patriarchy so much. And this is the only area where we feel like, you know, ordering supplements on Amazon may give us a little more sense of agency than going to a white, straight-sized male physician who tells us to lose weight for PCOS. So I think there's a lot there. I read this from, I forgot her name. She was a, she's a women's hormone doctor and also just like super balanced. But she said something about how like on average, women experience 75% more stress than men. Just like, I don't remember how this study was conducted, but basically highlighting the effects of the patriarchy of just like existing, all things equal, women are just more stressed for obvious reasons. So a very winded way of coming to or asking you about how do you feel about this like non-hormonal birth control thing or the whole like hormone experts that talk about, I don't know, it's just so difficult. So I'm wondering what your take on that is. Yeah, such a good question. I think 
It is so tricky because there is a void in conventional healthcare to some degree with this stuff. And, you know, women's health is one area where I think women can feel really underserved by the conventional healthcare system, especially when doctors are like, I don't know, go on the pill, like go on the pill, it'll fix it, right? Mm -hmm. Go on the pill, it'll fix your acne, go on the pill, it'll fix your PCOS, whatever. It's sort of like just pushed as this cure-all. And, you know, I think there is also like a weaponization of that frustration or lack of, lack of feeling heard by wellness culture. So I think like, Certain wellness providers maybe are capitalizing on that lack of support for women's health in ways that are not so helpful, in ways of like telling women that hormonal birth control is evil and is going to, you know, harm them in some way. Like, I think there's now more and more rhetoric around very anti-birth control and in sort of a way that has its own roots in the patriarchy, actually, like trying to get women to go back to sort of traditional roles and, you know, the trad, like lifestyle and whatever. And I think that's really problematic, right? So it's like capitalizing on women feeling unserved in order to pull them further into patriarchal values. So I think like being aware of of that, being aware of what the what the motives and goals are of someone trying to sell you something is really important. There's people who are capitalizing on it and maybe doing it with good intent. I think a lot of people do things thinking they're helping when they're actually maybe not, you know? So the hormone, so-called hormone health experts who tell everybody they need to cut out all kinds of foods, right? But for, for supposed hormone health, when there's really not a lot of good evidence or in many cases, any evidence behind those recommendations. I think, you know, just being aware that when you're feeling underserved, by the healthcare system, you're in an especially vulnerable state and maybe trying not to make any big decisions in that state, especially when you're getting information from social media and the internet that's sort of pulling on you emotionally, you know, being aware of what a source is bringing up in you. This is something I talk about in the kind of solution section of the book of like, how can we be critical consumers of wellness culture and think critically about things? And I think if you notice that like your nervous system is getting activated, you're getting really fearful, you're starting to feel like, oh my God, this, like everything I've been told about this is wrong. I have to do something. I have to change immediately. I have to buy this thing, you know, to fix it. That's a moment I think when taking a pause, sort of trying to do your best to cope with those emotions and regulate your emotions before making any sort of decision is really helpful. And that's not to say that, you know, you won't maybe still go off birth control or you won't maybe still try a supplement or try cutting something out or whatever. But I think doing it from a place of less reactivity and doing it from a place of experimentation and thinking like, this might not work. And if it doesn't work, it's not my fault. And it doesn't mean I have to do it harder or add more stuff or more interventions. It might just mean that this thing doesn't work because it doesn't actually have science behind it. And, you know, if I choose to experiment on myself, it's an experiment. That's just what it is. Because I think sometimes these sources also have their own belief systems that people get pulled into where it's like, oh, well, if you're having this response when you cut out these foods, it's because you're also sensitive to this or it's because you have a deficiency of this and you need to take this thing or, you know, coming off birth control is going to have these effects and like it's to be expected or something and not 
not sort of thinking of it as this might mean that it's, this isn't right for me. Like sometimes we need medications, right? Sometimes medication actually is helpful. Mm -hmm. And so even if a sort of blanket recommendation has been made to you, like, oh, go on the pill for this thing. And you're like, I don't quite know why that would work for me or why, you know, what's the evidence behind this or whatever, but you try something else and it doesn't really work. Like there's no harm in going back to the conventional method. There's no harm in going back to the conventional doctor and saying, you know, I tried this thing, didn't really work. What else have you got for me or what? what can we do, you know? So yeah, I think just trying to be as skeptical of the alternatives that are being sold to you as you are of the conventional stuff is really important because we're conditioned, I think, so much to be skeptical of the of the conventional stuff, right? And sometimes for good reason, because the conventional system is fraught and problematic as we've been talking about. And pharmaceuticals are fraught and problematic as I talk about in the book, you know? But also we need to look at the flip side. Like not everything that's packaged as quote unquote natural is better. Sometimes those things are worse. Sometimes those things have worse health outcomes, worse side effects are ineffective or even harmful in and of themselves. And so looking as skeptically or more skeptically of those things than we do of the conventional system is important. I agree. I think it depends on like who you are and where you hang out because I have some medical professional friends that will literally write me a prescription for every single ailment that I could possibly mention in passing and just like freak out about that intervention, pushing it onto me. And I also have, like I mentioned, very close people who will prescribe celery juice for everything. And I like that your book, again, is coming at this particular point in time because we're seeing the latter more frequently, more and more frequently. So it's hard to find trusted sources. It's hard to do your own research because depending on (laughs) what algorithm you're on or what article you click on, you can be led down very two completely different paths. I think healthy skepticism is, is really important. The only person who I know in my real life who it's just like so balanced. It hurts me. Is my now husband. Mm. <laughs> he just like everything. And it used to annoy the crap out of me because sometimes, you know, you just want to be right. I mean, especially as a wife, like that's your job. You just <laughs> be right. And I think it's one of the reasons why I guess I recently married him is because he's just so grounded. Now, of course, he's a cis man, um, <laughs> but it's the energy that I really want people to also get from your book and that kind of critical thinking. So I want to move on to my next little, not rebuttal, but perhaps instance. Mm -hmm. And that is, have you seen those memes or videos about foods banned in the EU that are legal in the U.S.? That shit gets me, Christy. That shit gets mm. me because I'm like, oh my God, I got to throw out Honey Bunches of Oats. It's my favorite cereal, but it's it's <sighs> on that list. No, <laughs> I know. It's so rough. Well, it kind of does scare me because, and I think a lot of people can attest to this that have, for example, traveled to Europe. This is not, you know, scientific research, but the food is different. Like you feel different and I don't know, I'm not drinking as much water, but I still feel super hydrated. So there's these whole Mm. things about like, what is going on with our water in the United States and why are we getting pushed to drink gallons and gallons? And every single European is giving like a side eye to that or the amount of bread that I eat there and feel perfectly fine. Whereas if I were to have a giant baguette here, it would affect me totally differently. So there are some Mm. elements. I wanted to bring this up 
because I'm sure some people have some healthy skepticism to the anti-diet world, the anti-wellness conversations that we're having. Because this is one of those things where I, I start dabbling. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really interesting when we experiment on ourselves, you know, and one of the reasons I am such a fan of science, even though science isn't perfect either, is that the scientific method can help separate out all the reasons we might be feeling or experiencing something or, you know, that people in general might feel or experience something with a certain treatment versus placebo. And I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with where they're like, when I, when I was in Europe, I just felt so much better. And it's like, okay. I mean, I lived in France for a year. I might've had that little moment at the beginning where I felt so much better. And then it was just life. But you're and on vacation. Actually, <laughs> exactly. And that's what I think, you know, we're missing in these conversations is like, if you're an American traveling in Europe, you're on vacation, you're probably, you know, well off enough that you can afford to do that. And so you're like, there's already sort of a, a level of privilege there of, of having sort of a, a baseline level of well-being, you know, and then the sort of like shaking off the stress of everyday life and just feeling like you're eating a baguette in France and you're probably thinking like, I'm eating a baguette in France. Like, when am I going to do this again? I'm, I have to have this baguette because I'm here. It's France. Like, this is delicious. It tastes so good. You know, they know how to do it right because they're in France and they, they make baguettes. Versus like here, I think if you're in your everyday life and you're eating a baguette, the sort of creeping sense of like, oh, this is bad for me. This is gluten or this is refined, you know, flour and blah, blah, blah is like a little more present, maybe not as pushed out of your mind as it would be on vacation where you're like, well, I don't even care because it's France. I have to eat this baguette, you know, like I've had clients who have serious eating disorders who've gone and, you know, I'm thinking of one in particular who like went to Italy and had pizza and it was the most amazing experience of her life, you know, but like, in real life in the US, she like won't touch pizza, is afraid of pizza, you know? Do you think that that's a testament to like kind of the type of mood that you're in as you're eating a certain thing? Like, do you think there's elements of like metaphysical, I don't know, just like I'm feeling good about eating pizza, whereas mm -hmm. eating the same pizza, not in Italy, in my home state feels totally different. Yeah, for sure. And I think that is huge. Like that's a big part of what they call the nocebo effect or the placebo effect with food, with with anything really. But, you know, if you think that something is bad for you or is going to harm you, it can literally have physiological effects. It can literally cause symptoms. Not that it's all in your head, but it's like actually the mind-body connection is real and there's systems in your body that are activated, like the endogenous opioid system, which helps relieve pain, is activated by a placebo. When you expect that something's going to make you feel better, it does because, you know, in part because of this endogenous opioid system. So like there's real physical benefits to placebos and there's real physical harms to nocebos. So when you think about it in that way, right, like, and actually a lot of research in nutrition, it's interesting, like doesn't control very well for the, the placebo or nocebo effect. But when you find research that does, you almost always find that there's no difference between the group, you know, the group that gets the gluten and the group that doesn't. And they, everybody thinks they're sensitive to gluten, but actually there's no difference in the two groups when they're controlling for this nocebo effect. And so, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. And I know people like 
you know, it's hard to hear this. And I know some people will be like, well, no, there's just this, there is this difference or I just feel better. And that's totally understandable. And I, I think, you know, placebos again and nocebos really do have measurable effects. And so I think if you're thinking about, like if you're making a change and it's not having significant negative impacts on your life and you're getting some placebo benefit from it, I don't see that as necessarily harmful to you as an individual. I still see the treatment being like pushed to everybody as harmful because, you know, marketing something that doesn't actually work, that's only a placebo, is not truthful and is not helpful for the vast majority of people, I think. But for the people who do get a placebo benefit from it, I don't think there's anything inherently negative for that individual for as long as the placebo seems to work. I think the problem is when the placebo wears off or if the treatment in question is harmful in and of itself, that's where the problem lies. So that's kind of getting into the weeds of placebo. But to your question about the European food standards and like, you know, these things are banned in Europe and these things are not. And I looked into the standards around food coloring and food dyes because it, it's a really interesting. That's where a lot of this conversation lives is like food dyes banned in Europe and allowed in the US. But there's actually food dyes banned in the US that are allowed in Europe. And there's, you know, there's different regulatory bodies around food safety have different ways of reading the scientific literature. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one is wrong and the other is right. It's really interesting if you dig into this. I did a newsletter piece about this that I'll maybe send to you and you can link to it in the show notes. But because I'm forgetting all the nuances of like the, you know, yellow number five and red number. I don't remember all the numbers, you know, but but there are certain ones that are banned in the US and still allowed in Europe or allowed in Australia or banned in Australia and allowed here, you know, or whatever, vice versa. It's, it's different in all countries because I think every regulatory body that looks at these things might have a different reading of the literature, but all of it is like, none of these things that are banned are sort of categorically bad. It's like the regulatory agency is, is using the most due diligence and sort of the, the most, the most cautious approach when they're banning a particular food dye, for example. But, you know, in another country, they might be using like an approach that's very consistent with the scientific evidence showing no likely harm to humans no scientific studies have found any harm to humans. There may be harm to rats in high doses, but actually rats have a different physiology than humans. And so we don't see any harm in humans, right? That's literally the case for one of those dyes. And I can't remember which one. And I think it was actually the case that the US banned it out of an abundance of caution, even though the problems were only found in rats and rats have different physiology than humans. And Europe said, you know what, this is okay. And so like, I think, those memes are really misleading and can be really fear-mongering and don't tell the whole story. Don't get into the nuance of the situation. And like, if you like honey bunches of oats, go for it. There's no reason not to eat them. Yeah, you know, I think if you don't like them or if, you know, you have a, an allergy to something in them or whatever, okay, you know, maybe you can make a different choice for self-care. But like, if you like something and you hear something bad about it, I don't think there's any reason to stop as long as it's not literally hurting you. Sounds like you don't have any sort of allergy to anything in it. So like, oh, that's all I needed to hear because it's literally feeding me. The amount of times that I have cereal for dinner 
as an adult <laughs> is quite embarrassing. Mm. Um, but <laughs> it is definitely my favorite. Okay, so just because I mentioned plant medicines and I mm. didn't want to not deliver on that, there's a section in your book, and I really don't want to spend too much time on this because that's not what the wellness trap is about. But I think that the way that ayahuasca and other, quote, plant medicines have been just used at an influx and experimented with is quite symbolic of how things like catch on and how quickly we latch on to one solution for a very big, complex, multi-layered, multifaceted thing with ayahuasca, for example, it could be like mental health conditions like PTSD and eating disorders and depression, anxiety, things that are very, very serious. So what's your take on the use of things like ayahuasca? Yeah. So as I talk about in the book, you know, I think there's like real cultural appropriation issues with how ayahuasca is being used. And I've heard authorities from indigenous cultures that use and depend on ayahuasca saying that they don't think ayahuasca should be used outside of their traditional contexts, that they don't think they should be used outside of the place where they're endemic to or indigenous to. And so that to me is important to listen to. And I don't know how much that message is really getting through in certain circles that are really excited about the potential for ayahuasca. I know that, of course, people have sort of life-changing experiences with it. I know there are people who credit it with saving their lives. I know there are people from those indigenous communities, not necessarily like the medical authorities in those communities, but people who have sold ayahuasca or, or run lodges selling ayahuasca ceremonies that, you know, have found it beneficial and sort of brought economic stability to the region. And that, you know, is something to consider as well. But I think the fact that the people who are kind of closest to it and use it as medicine in a cultural context for millennia are saying that it shouldn't be used outside of that context is, is very much worth taking to heart. And I know that like the reason there is such a craze for this stuff is because we don't have great treatments for things like PTSD or eating disorders or other mental health conditions that people are seeking help for. But I think the, the sort of rabidness of adoption of psychedelics is, is a testament to like the lack of good treatments that we have for those things and the, and the desperate need on people's part. And also the desire to monetize, you know, the desire to capitalize on that need in certain corners. And so it's all, it's messy, it's complicated. And I think folks have to kind of decide for themselves. But to me, it doesn't feel worth waiting, you know, personally as someone, I have PTSD as well. And I have not wanted to try psychedelics for it because, you know, in part because of these thorny cultural appropriation issues, but also because it's just so untested and unproven at this point. And there have been studies showing benefits to people with PTSD and eating disorders, but I think it's very early stage research. And to me with multiple co-occurring physical health conditions and mental health conditions, I just don't know if there's enough good evidence on like how these things can interact with other 
conditions or medications for me to want to take that risk. So for what that's worth. Yeah, I, I agree. I think a lot of things can be approached in that way. And speaking of that, to wrap up, is all wellness BS in your eyes? And why or mm-hmm. why not? And do you have a litmus test? I know that The Wellness Trap, your new book, probably provides many solutions or at least ways of thinking about wellness. But do you have like one maybe short and sweet litmus test for determining whether a certain wellness craze or just habit that we want to start doing is going to be more helpful or harmful? Is there any like go-tos that you recommend we think about? Mm. So to your first question, I would say all wellness is not BS. I think there are definitely certain things that fall under the umbrella of wellness or within the wellness industry that can be helpful and beneficial. You know, yoga, meditation, like those things are both evidence-based and rooted in traditional cultures, although have been appropriated and, and twisted to some degree in certain circles as well. But I think many people do find benefit and, and the evidence finds benefit to those things. I'm a dietitian and an intuitive eating counselor. And so like I exist within the wellness industry as well. So I don't think all wellness is necessarily BS. And mental health, like there's a lot of things that go under the umbrella of wellness that I think can be useful. And I think a lot of it is harmful and maybe the harm outweighs the good of overall in the wellness industry. I'm not sure, but I definitely see a lot of harm and unintended consequences in alternative and integrative and functional medicine spaces, which are part of the wellness industry. I see a lot of harm and a lot of unintended consequences in the nutrition and diet space, which is a big part of the wellness industry a lot of harm and unintended consequences in plant medicine, in wellness culture approaches to mental health, like manifesting or the idea of repressed memories or things like that. So I think it's a mixed bag, but it's like a largely, it's like a bag full of nails that has some candy in it that you want to get out. (laughs) So, you know, it's important to be real careful as you're picking around in there to find the candy that like a lot of it is nails. And in terms of like a quick sort of litmus test for, I guess, distinguishing the candy from the nails, if we're going with that metaphor, I think that like in general, the less you can reach into that bag in the first place, the better. Like if you can try to find, Mm. you know, solutions and help and support outside of this really mixed bag of wellness culture, whether that means searching around for healthcare providers in the medical system that will hear you, that will support you, that won't, you know, just tell you to lose weight or go on a diet or dismiss you or make you feel unheard, you know, and I know there's access issues with that. I know it's hard for people to afford that or to have the ability to do that. And in some places there's only one doctor available and that's what you get. So I think that's a systemic issue too, right? I think a lot of these things are need to be changed at the systemic level. But I think as much as you can, like not searching in wellness culture for solutions to things that are maybe bigger than that, like getting to the root of what it really is that's ailing you 
is there like disordered eating and sort of a desire for a particular type of body at the root of why you're so concerned about bloating? You know, mm-hmm. is it like, yeah, the bloating's causing pain, but really I don't want my stomach to stick out and that's what's going on. And that's why I'm like so concerned about my gut health. Getting deeper with yourself around sort of the reason certain things are important. And of course, like if you have a chronic condition that is causing you pain, that's like keeping you from working or keeping you from you know, engaging in your life, making you feel tired all the time or in pain, you deserve help and you deserve care, but know that you're so vulnerable to false promises in that state that like, you know, to be extra careful with yourself, to be really, really gentle with yourself and not put yourself in the path of one of those nails, you know. It reminds me of something I wrote in an Instagram caption that I didn't know would resonate with so many people, but then it made sense why because it's something that capitalism has taught us to do. But I wrote that the more I tried to fix myself, the more I professed that I was broken. Mm. And I think a lot of the things in the wellness world that we're trying to fix might not even be problems. Like you mentioned with the bloating, like, is it really that big of an issue? You know, is it, and I'm not saying it can't be, it might be for some people, But there are probably a plethora of other examples that are more like hyped up in diet culture and beauty culture and wellness Mm -hmm. culture, especially in general, that make it seem like it's this problem to be fixed when really it's just like a human body being a human body or a human mind being a human mind. I think even some of the mental health things can can fall into that too, although not all. But um, Right. It's so complicated. And I think like mental health TikTok is a good example. I've had so many therapist friends tell me like, God, I wish people would stop looking at TikTok and like diagnosing themselves because they come in so sure that they have something and wanting a diagnosis for that. And it might be the totally wrong diagnosis. They have something going on, but it could be something completely different or it could be very like common sort of normative type stuff that doesn't even need a diagnosis, like just general like pain and difficulty of being human that needs support and needs empathy, of course, but like doesn't necessarily need a mental health label. And people are giving themselves these labels in in a way that I'm sure, you know, I think identifying something and feeling like you found the reason for it and found a community that coalesces around it can be beneficial. But when it's the wrong label, you're actually sometimes exposing yourself to treatments and approaches that are doing harm. And so just like holding lightly any sense of self-diagnosis or knowing what's wrong, I think is really helpful too. You know, not getting too wedded to anything and considering options, yes, but also like, you know, the more we can take ourselves out of the path of misinformation, the more we can like not be exposed to wellness culture, the better. So, you know, not following a lot of wellness accounts on social media to the extent that you can, you know, being really judicious about what you choose to let in when it comes to health and well-being. Not following a bunch of influencers or kind of falling down a rabbit hole of what you see on your For You page because that's really influenced by the algorithm and, you know, driving you toward more extremes. If you've already come in liking and following some of that content, you know, wellness content, it is going to take you to more and more and more extreme places. And so just being aware of that and trying to like, step out of that flow as much as possible so that you can protect Mm -hmm. yourself and so that you can 
decide what really feels good to you, you know, in the absence of all this input from other minds. I, I talk in the book too about like solitude deprivation. It's this concept from Cal Newport, who's a researcher and computer scientist and yeah, tech sort of critic. And this idea that, you know, we're always sort of plugged into other minds via our smartphones. And there's no moment when we just have, or very few moments when we just have time to like be bored and let our minds wander and sort of figure out what we think and we feel. And, you know, when you're constantly in that flow of wellness culture information about symptoms and health and well-being and labels, it can make it really hard to step out of that and, and feel like, what is actually going on for me? You know, for the gut health example, is this really, am I having a lot of pain with a bloating? Am I, is this a symptom of something deeper? Is there like a lot more going on with my digestion and bloating is just a surface level symptom? Or am I getting so fixated on the bloating, on the surface level look of having a distended or not flat belly that it's causing me to like hyper-focus on my digestive system and therefore causing more pain because I'm actually like noticing every single little thing, you know? Saying that as someone mm -hmm. with IBS, it's a hard thing to disentangle. And you might have something legit going on. You might have a condition like IBS or something even more serious like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or something like that. Or you may have symptoms that are that don't reach a level of any sort of diagnosis that are still painful, but that could maybe be treated with over-the-counter medications or could maybe be treated with quote-unquote lifestyle changes that have nothing to do with food, like not wearing tight pants or, um, you know, not lying down within, you know, a certain time after dinner as much as possible or things like that that have nothing to do with cutting out foods. So just, you know, giving mm -hmm. yourself the mm -hmm. space to explore all of that without the sort of noise and constant like know-it-allness of wellness culture, especially on social media, because I think there's always someone who wants to like tell you exactly what's going on for you and your body and has a whole theory behind it and a whole belief system that you can easily get sucked into if you start going down that road. And so just kind of like taking a step away from that. And I'm aware that as an anti-diet dietitian, intuitive eating practitioner, like I could be that person for someone else too. And I've like in the process of writing this book and becoming a mom and just like life over the course of the pandemic and sort of reflecting on my own space in the culture, I guess, or whatever. And, and my own relationship with social media too, and letting go of that a lot. I've had to sort of like soften my grip on some of the things I know to be true. So I still believe very much in anti-diet approach and intuitive eating, but I don't want to force it down anyone's throat. I don't want to like push it on people who aren't here for it. And I've softened my stance a lot, I think, with those things. So, you know, thinking about even me, like take me with a grain of salt too, please take everyone with a grain of salt and figure out truly for you, like what is actually going on in your own body. It's complicated, especially with disordered eating, because I think that can sort of make people feel like they're out of control with food when actually it's the restriction driving that that feeling. Mm -hmm. But you can test that for yourself. You know, you can try letting more foods in and and letting go of the restriction and and see what comes up. But I think, you know, mm. finding that measure of solitude, finding out what you really think and feel is a huge part of becoming a critical consumer of wellness culture. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat and thinking about my place in it and softening my grip and both as a consumer and an influencer, thinking a lot about tech ethics and 
the rabbit holes we go down on the internet. And I think that wellness culture and the wellness trap is a very important starting point for that too. Anyway, Christy, I want to respect your time. You've already served us so much and I'm just so in awe of you. So grateful. I recommend everybody reads your new book, The Wellness Trap and listens to your new podcast, Rethinking Wellness. By the way, on a personal note, is Food Psych done? Is it Rethinking Wellness now? Yeah. So Food Psych is going to be done April 24th as our last episode. Then it's just full steam ahead with a new pod for now. We'll see, you know, maybe and never say never. One day I could come back to Food Psych, but it's been over 10 years. I feel like it's really, you know, I've given it everything I had and I'm sort of ready for a new adventure in podcasting and to kind of expand some of the conversations in the new book and keep that going. So that's what the new podcast is about. And of course, we'll still be talking about people's relationships with food and their bodies, but also like all these other aspects of wellness culture, including the internet and mis and disinformation, which you're going to be coming on the podcast soon. And hopefully we'll get to continue that conversation there. So yeah. I can't wait for our next podcast interview together. And I'm so grateful for you. And we will talk soon. Hopefully we got to do a round two. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Christy. Thank you so much, Mary. It's such a pleasure. One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.